The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Okay, here we go. We started last time with The Beast in the Jungle by Mr. Henry James. You can go back and listen to that episode if you want, but you can also jump right in here if you'd like. We're eschewing the maneuvers today and going straight at them. That clock is our stern taskmaster to keep us on schedule and remind us of when to take breaks. If not for the clock, we'd go all night, all night and all morning and keep going and going and going. We'd spend a fortnight on Henry James. Especially because this story, The Beast in the Jungle, is so rich and so deep and so powerful. We're talking about the 1903 short story, novella-length short story by Henry James, who was turning 60 when he wrote it. And he had in his past a relationship with Constance Fenimore Wilson, maybe his soulmate, but she died when the two of them were in their early 50s. She might have committed suicide or she might have accidentally fallen from a fourth-story window in Venice. A shock to Henry James. Either way, he arrived on the scene to help take care of her things, her writing, her diaries, his letters to her. There have long been rumors that he burned a bunch of it. And there was a legend that he took her dresses out to a canal to drown them. But they ballooned up, refusing to drown, rather like ghosts from his past that would not stay submerged. We've talked all about that in previous episodes of The History of Literature. Hmm. Just a quick theme today, because we are on the clock. Do you hear that? What does that mean to you? A bomb? A bomb about to go off, but we don't know when or where or why. That's pretty close to what we're talking about here today. A life bomb, so to speak. We're talking about Henry James, and now we're in the middle of one of his greatest works, The Beast in the Jungle. And here's what you need to know if you're returning to this after a bit of time has passed, or if you're just jumping in right here, which I is fine too, I think. I think you'll catch up. A man has gone to a fancy house. His name is John Marcher, and he's gone there with some friends, but he always feels a little alone, and crowds don't help. Those crowds wander around doing their crowd-like things, chatting, and all thinking the same way about things, being the same, and he feels alone. He's lost in the crowd. He's different in his mind. We sense that he's a little more sensitive, for one thing, and he meets at this house a woman named May Bartram, who is suddenly drawn to him, and he to her, though he can't remember why. They knew each other long ago, but for him it's lost to the mists of time. He feels like he's in a sequel, but he can't remember the first volume. But she remembers. He confided a secret to her long ago, and suddenly it all comes flooding back. He confided a secret, his secret, the secret, something he's never told anyone about before. She's kept it to herself, but she hasn't forgotten it. And because she's been such a strong keeper of the secret, and he realizes that his secret matters to her, they're now sort of in it together. She's fascinated by the secret, and he's impressed by her devotion to it. What is this secret? It's pretty simple. In some ways, simple to explain. He thinks something special is going to happen to him. He's not sure what. He describes it, and she thinks maybe he's talking about falling in love. Those are the usual terms that people use for the way he talks about it. I'm waiting to fall in love. I was struck by love, or I wasn't struck by love. Love hit me. Cupid's arrow shot me, but he describes his fate, this thing, this thing that's lying in wait for him. And she says, is it love? Is that what you were waiting for? And he says, no, it's something that's never happened to anyone before. And it's more like a catastrophe than something pleasant. Something rare and strange awaits him. He's haunted by it. It's not something he wants, 
It's not a goal. It's not like winning the lottery or publishing a novel or being cast as the lead in a movie or falling in love or inheriting money or buying a new car or getting a promotion or achieving spiritual fulfillment or glimpsing a cathedral or hearing the voice of God. No, no, it's not something he wants at all. It's something that causes apprehension. It's something terrifying. And he's haunted by the expectation that this thing is on the way. It's around the corner. It could happen to him at any time. Something that's just for him. A thing. And at the end of chapter one, where we left off, they decide they're going to wait together. He's told no one else but her, and she's thought of little else for the past ten years. Now they're reunited by chance, and they're going to wait for this thing to happen to him together. I'll watch with you, says May Bartram, and now we are watching alongside them both. I can hardly stand it. Oh, and there is our alarm. Let me turn this off. Okay, the alarm is to keep us on schedule. So here we go. We'll take a break. This is as good a time as any. Quick break and then come right back with chapter two of The Beast in the Jungle. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. The Beast in the Jungle by Henry James. Chapter 2. The fact that she knew, knew and yet neither chaffed him nor betrayed him, had in a short time begun to constitute between them a goodly bond, which became more marked when, within the year that followed their afternoon at Weatherend, the opportunities for meeting multiplied. The event that thus promoted these occasions was the death of the ancient lady, her great-aunt, under whose wing, since losing her mother, she had to such an extent found shelter, and who, though but the widowed mother of the new successor to the property, had succeeded, thanks to a high tone and a high temper, in not forfeiting the supreme position at the great house. The deposition of this personage arrived but with her death, which, followed by many changes, made in particular a difference for the young woman in whom Marcher's expert attention had recognized from the first a dependent with a pride that might ache though it didn't bristle. Nothing for a long time had made him easier than the thought that the aching must have been much soothed by Miss Bartram's now finding herself able to set up a small home in London. She had acquired property to an amount that made that luxury just possible under her aunt's extremely complicated will and when the whole matter began to be straightened out, which indeed took time, she let him know that the happy issue was at last in view. He had seen her again before that day, both because she had more than once accompanied the ancient lady to town, and because he had paid another visit to the friends who so conveniently made of Weatherend 
one of the charms of their own hospitality. These friends had taken him back there. He had achieved there again with Miss Bartram some quiet detachment, and he had in London succeeded in persuading her to more than one brief absence from her aunt. They went together, on these latter occasions, to the National Gallery and the South Kensington Museum, where, among vivid reminders, they talked of Italy at large, not now attempting to recover, as at first, the taste of their youth and their ignorance. That recovery, the first day at Wetherend, had served its purpose well, had given them quite enough, so that they were, to Marcher's sense, no longer hovering about the headwaters of their stream, but had felt their boat pushed sharply off and down the current. Okay, let's pause there. All this seems like more throat clearing. It puts us in the frame of mind for the two of them. They're not going to spend all their time dwelling on the past and that brief exchange they had ten years ago. Instead, they are moving forward. She's inherited some money and has some independence. She lives in London. He's happy to take her out to museums where they're reminded of Italy, which puts them in the frame of mind that they are united for a purpose. When he first confided the secret to her, they were in Italy. It's not dwelling on the past, though. They're on a journey forward together. Got it? (laughs) Did you follow that paragraph? I won't interrupt all the time, but when James trips all over himself to get his words out, I sometimes feel like it's helpful to just orient ourselves with some straight talk. He's beautiful with his metaphors and precise and detailed, but sometimes he can't get out of his own way. And now let me get out of my own way or your way or whoever's way we're talking about and get back to the story. We have got to find out what this beast is, don't we? This thing, I need to know. Back to the story. They were literally afloat together. For our gentlemen, this was marked quite as marked as that the fortunate cause of it was just the buried treasure of her knowledge. He had with his own hands dug up this little hoard, brought to light, that is, to within reach of the dim day constituted by their discretions and privacies, the object of value, the hiding place of which he had, after putting it into the ground himself, so strangely, so long forgotten. The rare luck of his having again just stumbled on the spot made him indifferent to any other question. He would doubtless have devoted more time to the odd accident of his lapse of memory if he hadn't been moved to devote so much to the sweetness, the comfort, as he felt, for the future, that this accident itself had helped to keep fresh. It had never entered into his plan that anyone should know, and mainly for the reason that it wasn't in him to tell anyone. That would have been impossible, for nothing but the amusement of a cold world would have waited on it. Since, however, a mysterious fate had opened his mouth betimes, in spite of him, he would count that a compensation and profit by it to the utmost. That the right person should know tempered the asperity of his secret more even than his shyness had permitted him to imagine. And May Bartram was clearly right, because, well, because there she was. Her knowledge simply settled it. He would have been sure enough by this time had she been wrong. There was that in his situation, no doubt, that disposed him too much to see her as a mere confidant, taking all her light for him from the fact, the fact only, of her interest in his predicament, from her mercy, sympathy, seriousness, her consent not to regard him as the funniest of the funny, aware, in fine, that her price for him was just in her giving him this constant sense of his being admirably spared. He was careful to remember that she had also a life of her own with things that might happen to her, things that in friendship one should likewise take account of. Something fairly remarkable came to pass with him, for that matter, in this connection, something represented by a certain passage of his consciousness, in the suddenest way, from one extreme to the other. He had thought himself, so long as nobody knew, the most disinterested person in the world, carrying his concentrated burden, 
his perpetual suspense ever so quietly, holding his tongue about it, giving others no glimpse of it, nor of its effect upon his life, asking of them no allowance, and only making on his side all those that were asked. He hadn't disturbed people with the queerness of their having to know a haunted man, though he had had moments of rather special temptation on hearing them say they were, forsooth, unsettled. If they were as unsettled as he was, he who had never been settled for an hour in his life, they would know what it meant. Yet it wasn't all the same for him to make them, and he listened to them civilly enough. This was why he had such good, though possibly rather such colorless, manners. This was why, above all, he could regard himself in a greedy world as decently as in fact perhaps even a little sublimely unselfish. Our point is, accordingly, that he valued this character quite sufficiently to measure his present danger of letting it lapse, against which he promised himself to be much on his guard. He was quite ready, nonetheless, to be selfish just a little, since surely no more charming occasion for it had come to him. Just a little, in a word, was just as much as Miss Bartram, taking one day with another, would let him. He never would be in the least coercive, and would keep well before him the lines on which consideration for her, the very highest, ought to proceed. He would thoroughly establish the heads under which her affairs, her requirements, her peculiarities, he went so far as to give them the latitude of that name would come into their intercourse. All this naturally was a sign of how much he took the intercourse itself for granted. There was nothing more to be done about that. It simply existed, had sprung into being with her first penetrating question to him in the autumn light there at Weatherend. The real form it should have taken on the basis that stood out large was the form of their marrying— but the devil in this was that the very basis itself put marrying out of the question. His conviction, his apprehension, his obsession, in short, wasn't a privilege he could invite a woman to share. And that consequence of it was precisely what was the matter with him. Something or other lay in wait for him, amid the twists and the turns of the months and the years, like a crouching beast in the jungle. It signified little whether the crouching beast were destined to slay him or to be slain. The definite point was the inevitable spring of the creature, and the definite lesson from that was that a man of feeling didn't cause himself to be accompanied by a lady on a tiger hunt. Such was the image under which he had ended by figuring his life. They had at first, nonetheless, in the scattered hours spent together, made no allusion to that view of it, which was a sign he was handsomely alert to give that he didn't expect, that he in fact didn't care always to be talking about it. Such a feature in one's outlook was really like a hump on one's back. The difference it made every minute of the day existed quite independently of discussion. One discussed, of course, like a hunchback, for there was always, if nothing else, the hunchback face. That remained, and she was watching him. But people watched best, as a general thing, in silence, so that such would be predominantly the manner of their vigil. Yet he didn't want, at the same time, to be tense and solemn. Tense and solemn was what he imagined he too much showed for with other people. The thing to be with the one person who knew, was easy and natural, to make the reference rather than be seeming to avoid it, to avoid it rather than be seeming to make it, and to keep it, in any case, familiar, facetious even, rather than pedantic and portentous. Some such consideration as the latter was doubtless in his mind, for instance, when he wrote pleasantly to Miss Bartram that perhaps the great thing he had so long felt as in the lap of the gods, was no more than this circumstance, which touched him so nearly, 
of her acquiring a house in London. It was the first illusion they had yet again made, needing any other hitherto so little. But when she replied, after having given him the news, that she was by no means satisfied with such a trifle as the climax to so special a suspense, she almost set him wondering if she hadn't even a larger conception of singularity for him than he had for himself. He was at all events destined to become aware, little by little, as time went by, that she was all the while looking at his life, judging it, measuring it, in the light of the thing she knew, which grew to be, at last, with the consecration of the years, never mentioned between them save as the real truth about him. That had always been his own form of reference to it, but she adopted the form so quietly that, looking back at the end of a period, he knew there was no moment at which it was traceable that she had, as he might say, got inside his idea, or exchanged the attitude of beautifully indulging for that of still more beautifully believing him. It was always open to him to accuse her of seeing him but as the most harmless of maniacs, and this, in the long run, since it covered so much ground, was his easiest description of their friendship. He had a screw loose for her, but she liked him in spite of it, and was practically, against the rest of the world, his kind, wise keeper." unremunerated but fairly amused and, in the absence of other near ties, not disreputably occupied. The rest of the world, of course, thought him queer, but she, she only, knew how, and above all why, queer, which was precisely what enabled her to dispose the concealing veil in the right folds. She took his gaiety from him, since it had to pass with them for gaiety as she took everything else, but she certainly so far justified by her unerring touch his finer sense of the degree to which he had ended by convincing her. She, at least, never spoke of the secret of his life except as the real truth about you, and she had in fact a wonderful way of making it seem, as such, the secret of her own life too." That was, in fine, how he so constantly felt her as allowing for him. He couldn't on the whole call it anything else. He allowed for himself, but she exactly allowed still more, partly because, better placed for a sight of the matter, she traced his unhappy perversion through reaches of its course into which he could scarce follow it. He knew how he felt, but besides knowing that, she knew how he looked as well. He knew each of the things of importance he was insidiously kept from doing, but she could add up the amount they made, understand how much, with a lighter weight on his spirit he might have done, and thereby establish how, clever as he was, he fell short. Above all, she was in the secret of the difference between the forms he went through, those of his little office under government, those of caring for his modest patrimony, for his library, for his garden in the country, for the people in London whose invitations he accepted and repaid, and the detachment that reigned beneath them and that made of all behavior, all that could in the least be called behavior, a long act of dissimulation. What it had come to was that he wore a mask painted with the social simper, out of the eye-holes of which there looked eyes of an expression not in the least matching the other features. This the stupid world, even after years, had never more than half discovered. It was only May Bartram who had, and she achieved, by an art indescribable, the feat of at once, or perhaps it was only alternately, meeting the eyes from in front and mingling her own vision, as from over his shoulder, with their peep through the apertures. Ah. There we go. An alarm tells us this is time to pause. Is this a good stopping point? What have we heard so far? We've heard that May Bartram is the perfect watcher for John Marcher, and yet in some ways it's quite a thing for him to have a watcher. He's waiting for this beast in the jungle, and so is she. And it makes him feel different, which is a hard thing for him to live with, but it makes her feel different too. 
And that's a hard thing for him to live with as well. Maybe even harder. What if she gets so invested in his fate that it puts some real pressure on him? What if he's just a maniac? What if she comes to grips with that or stops believing in him? Or what if she does believe in him and it changes her too much? Those are tough questions. He's not alone. He's with her. And yet it seems that marriage would be out of the question. They're going to be alone together or together alone. So let's pause there for our break and then come back with the rest of chapter two and all of chapter three. If we can get that far, we have got to find out what's happening to John Marcher. What is this beast crouching and awaiting, waiting to spring on him? What does his fate have in store? back. Let's dive right back into the story. We're still in chapter two, still with our two watchers, one haunted by apprehension of what will befall him, the other fascinated and gamely willing to watch it happen. The two of them connected by this secret future shocking event, this beast in the jungle, in his jungle, his beast in his jungle. Back to the story. So while they grew older together, she did watch with him, and so she let this association give shape and color to her own existence. Beneath her forms as well, detachment had learned to sit, and behavior had become for her, in the social sense, a false account of herself. There was but one account of her that would have been true all the while, and that she could give straight to nobody, least of all to John Marcher. Her whole attitude was a virtual statement, but the perception of that only seemed called to take its place for him as one of the many things necessarily crowded out of his consciousness. If she had, moreover, like himself, to make sacrifices to their real truth, it was to be granted that her compensation might have affected her as more prompt and more natural. They had long periods in this London time, during which, when they were together, A stranger might have listened to them without in the least pricking up his ears. On the other hand, the real truth was equally liable at any moment to rise to the surface, and the auditor would then have wondered indeed what they were talking about. They had from an early hour made up their mind that society was, luckily, unintelligent, and the margin allowed them by this had fairly become one of their commonplaces. Yet there were still moments when the situation turned almost fresh, usually under the effect of some expression drawn from herself. Her expressions doubtless repeated themselves, but her intervals were generous. What saves us, you know, is that we answer so completely to so usual an appearance, that of the man and woman whose friendship has become such a daily habit, or almost, as to be at last indispensable. Very quick pause here to note that James and his friend, the writer Constance Fenimore Wilson, had this kind of a relationship. Biographical-minded listeners will want to take note of this here. Was James drawing upon his relationship with Wilson? She had died about nine years before he wrote this. He had thoughts that maybe she should have meant more to him, and vice versa, that their friendship had was insufficient in retrospect. A daily habit that became indispensable. That's a description of John and May in the story. But was that ultimately satisfying? It's very close to what Henry and Constance had felt together. A daily habit. Went out every day. They wrote to each other every day. They became indispensable. But was that enough? Back to the story. That, for instance, was a remark she had frequently enough had occasion to make, though she had given it at different times different developments. What we are especially concerned with is the turn it happened to take from her one afternoon when he had come to see her in honor of her birthday. This anniversary had fallen on a Sunday, at a season of thick fog and general outward gloom, 
but he had brought her his customary offering, having known her now long enough to have established a hundred small traditions. It was one of his proofs to himself, the present he made on her birthday, that he hadn't sunk into real selfishness. It was mostly nothing more than a small trinket, but it was always fine of its kind, and he was regularly careful to pay for it more than he thought he could afford. Our habit saves you, at least, don't you see? Because it makes you, after all, for the vulgar, indistinguishable from other men. What's the most inveterate mark of men in general? Why, the capacity to spend endless time with dull women. To spend it, I won't say without being bored, but without minding that they are, without being driven off at a tangent by it. Which comes to the same thing. I'm your dull woman a part of the daily bread for which you pray at church. That covers your tracks more than anything. And what covers yours? asked Marcher, whom his dull woman could mostly to this extent amuse. I see, of course, what you mean by your saving me in this way and that, so far as other people are concerned. I've seen it all along. Only what is it that saves you? I often think, you know, of that. She looked as if she sometimes thought of that too, but rather in a different way. Where other people, you mean, are concerned? Well, you're really so in with me, you know, as a sort of result of my being so in with yourself. I mean, of my having such an immense regard for you, being so tremendously mindful of all you've done for me. I sometimes ask myself if it's quite fair. Fair, I mean, to have so involved and, since one may say it, interested you. I almost feel as if you hadn't really had time to do anything else. Anything else but be interested? She asked. At what else does one ever want to be? If I've been watching with you, as we long ago agreed I was to do, watching's always in itself an absorption. Oh, certainly, John Marcher said. If you hadn't had your curiosity, only doesn't it sometimes come to you as time goes on that your curiosity isn't being particularly repaid? May Bartram had a pause. Do you ask that by any chance because you feel at all that yours isn't? I mean, because you have to wait so long? Oh, he understood what she meant. For the thing to happen that never does happen? For the beast to jump out? No, I'm just where I was about it. It isn't a matter as to which I can choose. I can decide for a change. It isn't one as to which there can be a change. It's in the lap of the gods. One's in the hands of one's law. There one is. As to the form the law will take... The way it will operate, that's its own affair. Yes, Miss Bartram replied. Of course one's fate's coming. Of course it has come in its own form and its own way all the while. Only, you know, the form and the way in your case were to have been, well, something so exceptional, and, as one may say, so particularly your own. Something in this made him look at her with suspicion. You say, were to have been, as if in your heart you had begun to doubt. Oh, she vaguely protested. As if you believed, he went on, that nothing will now take place. She shook her head slowly, but rather inscrutably. You're far from my thought. He continued to look at her. What then is the matter with you? Well, she said after another wait, the matter with me is simply that I'm more sure than ever my curiosity, as you call it, will be but too well repaid. They were frankly grave now. He had got up from his seat, had turned once more about the little drawing room to which, year after year, he brought his inevitable topic, in which he had, as he might have said, tasted their intimate community with every sauce, where every object was as familiar to him as the things of his own house 
and the very carpets were worn with his fitful walk, very much as the desks in old counting houses are worn by the elbows of generations of clerks. The generations of his nervous moods had been at work there, and the place was the written history of his whole middle life. Under the impression of what his friend had just said, he knew himself, for some reason, more aware of these things, which made him, after a moment, stop again before her. Is it possibly that you've grown afraid? Afraid? He thought, as she repeated the word, that his question had made her a little change color, so that, lest he should have touched on a truth, he explained very kindly, You remember that that was what you asked me long ago, that first day at Weatherend. Oh, yes, and you told me you didn't know that I was to see for myself. We've said little about it since, even in so long a time. Precisely, Marcher interposed, quite as if it were too delicate a matter for us to make free with, quite as if we might find, on pressure, that I am afraid. For then, he said, we shouldn't, should we, quite know what to do. She had for the time no answer to this question. There have been days when I thought you were. Only, of course, she added, there have been days when we have thought almost anything. Everything. Oh, Marcher softly groaned as with a gasp, half spent at the face, more uncovered just then than it had been for a long while, of the imagination always with them. It had always had its incalculable moments of glaring out, quite as with the very eyes of the very beast, and, used as he was to them, they could still draw from him the tribute of a sigh that rose from the depths of his being. All they had thought, first and last, rolled over him. The past seemed to have been reduced to mere barren speculation. This, in fact, was what the place had just struck him as so full of, the simplification of everything but the state of suspense that remained only by seeming to hang in the void surrounding it. Even his original fear, if fear it had been, had lost itself in the desert. I judge, however, he continued, that you see I'm not afraid now. What I see, as I make out, is that you've achieved something almost unprecedented in the way of getting used to danger. Living with it so long and so closely, you've lost your sense of it. You know it's there, but you're indifferent, and you cease even, as of old, to have to whistle in the dark. Considering what the danger is, May Bartram wound up, I'm bound to say I don't think your attitude could well be surpassed. John Marcher faintly smiled. It's heroic? Certainly. Call it that. It was what he would have liked indeed to call it. I am, then, a man of courage? That's what you were to show me. He still, however, wondered. But doesn't the man of courage know what he's afraid of, or not afraid of? I don't know that, you see. I don't focus it. I can't name it. I only know I'm exposed. Yes, but exposed, how shall I say, so directly. So intimately, that's surely enough. Enough to make you feel, then, as what we may call the end and the upshot of our watch, that I'm not afraid? You're not afraid. But it isn't, she said, the end of our watch. That is, it isn't the end of yours. You've still everything to see. Then why haven't you? he asked. He had had, all along, today, the sense of her keeping something back, and he still had it. As this was his first impression of that, it quite made a date. The case was the more marked as she didn't at first answer, which in turn made him go on. You know something I don't. Then his voice, for that of a man of courage, trembled a little. You know what's to happen. Her silence, with the face she showed, was almost a confession. It made him sure. You know, 
And you're afraid to tell me. It's so bad that you're afraid I'll find out. All this might be true, for she did look as if, unexpectedly to her, he had crossed some mystic line that she had secretly drawn round her. Yet she might, after all, not have worried, and the real climax was that he himself, at all events, needn't. You'll never find out. Hmm. That is the end of chapter two, and our timer is not gone off. It's permitting us to keep going, so onward we shall go. But let's take a moment to regroup in between chapters. What a wonderful development. He believes this will happen, believes that his existence is, believes he's special because of this. No one else has ever had this thing waiting for him. It's unique to him, and she not only believes in it, she believes that he's courageous for bearing it. And then, what a delicious twist, he becomes convinced that she knows what it is and won't tell him, and she elliptically says, maybe, 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 you'll never know if I do or not. Oh, good lord. The suspense here, people. Do we all have such beasts waiting for us? Do we? Let's hope that we do not. I don't want one. I don't want to know anyone who has one. It's not fun. It's getting to the point of terror. You never know what's going to jump out at you, but it's something that's never happened to anyone before. That's all you know. Yikes. Or yikes. (laughs) Yikes in all caps. Maybe not that far. This isn't the turn of the screw, but it's getting there. Yikes in partial all caps. Yikes with at least a capital Y and a capital I. The rest of the word can be in lowercase, I suppose. Yikes. On we go with chapter three. My inclination here, I will confess, is to skip the first paragraph of chapter three so we get to the good stuff. John takes May to the opera now and then, that's what happens in the first paragraph of chapter three, a dozen times in a month. And he goes inside her house afterwards to have a little supper. They play songs from the opera on the piano, which they both play. It sounds like two people falling in love, doesn't it? And yet they're not. There's a huge elephant in the closet here. Did I say in the closet? I meant in the corner, except I guess maybe I did mean in the closet. Two elephants in the closet. John and May, Henry and Constance. You know what? I was going to skip the first paragraph because it's a little difficult to understand and follow. I worry I'm going to lose the listeners. And yet, I feel like I must read it now because one of the fascinating things about James is that when he starts to write about homosexuality, he gets difficult to follow, almost like he's trying to be confusing Or maybe it's closer to the truth to say he gets conflicted and his mind starts darting this way and that. He starts falling into obfuscation, impenetrability. Like I said, I I honestly don't know if he was gay or confused or afraid or what exactly he knew about himself and how he felt about it. It's not something his biographers have nailed down. Only a, a speculative reader tries to piece together clues from fiction but I'll read the paragraph. Don't worry if the first half a dozen sentences are hard to follow. That's just build up. The payoff will come when he asks her a very key question, which I will let play out and then return to afterwards to discuss. Here we go. Chapter three. It was all to have made, nonetheless, as I have said, a date, which came out in the fact that again and again, even after long intervals, Other things that passed between them were in relation to this hour, but the character of recalls and results. Its immediate effect had been indeed rather to lighten insistence, almost to provoke a reaction, as if their topic had dropped by its own weight, and as if, moreover, for that matter, Marcher had been visited by one of his occasional warnings against egotism. He had kept up, he felt, and very decently on the whole, his consciousness of the importance of not being selfish. And it was true that he had never sinned in that direction without promptly enough trying to press the scales the other way. He often repaired his fault, the season permitting, by inviting his friend to accompany him to the opera. And it not infrequently thus happened that, to show he didn't wish her to have but one sort of food for her mind, he was the cause of her appearing there with him a dozen nights in the month. 
It even happened that, seeing her home at such times, he occasionally went in with her to finish, as he called it, the evening, and, the better to make his point, sat down to the frugal but always careful little supper that awaited his pleasure. His point was made, he thought, by his not eternally insisting with her on himself, made, for instance, at such hours, when it befell that, her piano at hand and each of them familiar with it, they went over passages of the opera together. It chanced to be on one of these occasions, however, that he reminded her of her not having answered a certain question he had put to her during the talk that had taken place between them on her last birthday. What is it that saves you? Saved her, he meant, from that appearance of variation from the usual human type. If he had practically escaped remark, as she pretended, by doing in the most important particular what most men do, find the answer to life in patching up an alliance of a sort with a woman no better than himself, how had she escaped it? And how could the alliance, such as it was, since they must suppose it had been more or less noticed, have failed to make her rather positively talked about. I never said, May Bartram replied, that it hadn't made me a good deal talked about. Ah, well, then you're not saved. It hasn't been a question for me. If you've had your woman, I've had, she said, my man. And you mean that makes you all right? Oh, it was always as if there were so much to say. I don't know why it shouldn't make me, humanly, which is what we're speaking of, as right as it makes you. I see, Marcher returned, humanly, no doubt, as showing that you're living for something. Not, that is, just for me and my secret. May Bartram smiled. I don't pretend it exactly shows that I'm not living for you. It's my intimacy with you that's in question. He laughed as he saw what she meant. Yes, but since you, as you say, I'm only, so far as people make out, ordinary, you're, aren't you, no more than ordinary either. You help me to pass for a man like another. So if I am, as I understand you, you're not compromised. Is that it? She had another of her weights but she spoke clearly enough. That's it. It's all that concerns me, to help you to pass for a man like another. He was careful to acknowledge the remark handsomely. How kind, how beautiful you are to me. How shall I ever repay you? She had her last grave pause, as if there might be a choice of ways. But she chose, by going on as you are, Oh, uh. there is our timer telling us our time is done, almost done today. Let's not stop quite there. We've got some time. We have a lot to talk about, don't we? That whole exchange, I won't read it a second time, but you can easily, easily read that exchange as a gay man and a lesbian woman saying, you're covering for me and I'm covering for you and this works, doesn't it? It helps us both in a society where our true feelings are condemned, saying it in their polite and indirect way, but with some frankness too. That's an easy read, so easy that it seems like it must be kind of intentional. And yet I also think we have our beast reading. I don't want to collapse that either because I think James has that still going as well. The beast, you can read the whole story as the beast being a metaphor for coming out of the closet intentionally or not so, or maybe it's giving in to your impulses, giving in to your true self, or being discovered. And Marcher, in a reading like this, is sort of egotistical to turn it into something that could only happen to him and that he views as being incredibly special. That's a reading of the story, and I'm not going to get in anyone's way of anyone who wants to read it that way. There's certainly a lot to explore in that reading. It's been done before. You can find critics who read it that way. I want to say that it can be that reading plus something else. That's me. That's me looking for what the author was putting into this. Because there's also this, this rather beautiful sense of a man who simply doesn't know, who fears the unknown, and the woman who's going to watch with him. And this is a pretty fascinating idea. And if it's about being gay, the two of them being gay, waiting for the hammer to fall, then it's pretty fascinating that they 
came up with this idea of a beast in a jungle in the first place. What a wild vision that they had. Let's return to the story and see where it takes us. How shall I ever repay you, he says, by going on as you are? She replies, what does that mean? By continuing to be my friend? Or by staying courageous in the face of this special event that's going to happen to you and you alone, and which has become part of my life now too? What an amazing pair we have here in front of us, and what a, a scenario that they're locked into. Let's hear more of what happens. Back to the story. It was into this going on as he was that they relapsed, and really for so long a time that the day inevitably came for a further sounding of their depths. These depths, constantly bridged over by a structure firm enough, in spite of its lightness and of its occasional oscillation in the somewhat vertiginous air, invited on occasion, in the interest of their nerves, a dropping of the plummet and a measurement of the abyss. A difference had been made, moreover, once for all, by the fact that she had all the while not appeared to feel the need of rebutting his charge of an idea within her that she didn't dare to express, a charge uttered just before one of the fullest of their later discussions ended. It had come up for him then that she knew something and that what she knew was bad, too bad to tell him. When he had spoken of it as visibly so bad that she was afraid he might find it out, her reply had left the matter too equivocal to be let alone, and yet, for Marcher's special sensibility, almost too formidable again to touch. He circled about it at a distance that alternately narrowed and widened, and that still wasn't much affected by the consciousness in him that there was nothing she could know, after all, any better than he did. She had no source of knowledge he hadn't equally, except, of course, that she might have finer nerves. That was what women had when they were interested. They made out things, where people were concerned, that the people often couldn't have made out for themselves. Their nerves, their sensibility, their imagination were conductors and revealers, and the beauty of May Bartram was in particular that she had given herself so to his case. He felt in these days what, oddly enough, he had never felt before. The growth of a dread of losing her by some catastrophe. Some catastrophe that yet wouldn't at all be the catastrophe. Partly because she had almost of a sudden begun to strike him as more useful to him than ever, yet, and partly by reason of an appearance of uncertainty in her health, coincident and equally new. It was characteristic of the inner detachment he had hitherto so successfully cultivated, and to which our whole account of him is a reference, it was characteristic that his complications, such as they were, had never yet seemed so as at this crisis to thicken about him, even to the point of making him ask himself if he were, by any chance, of a truth within sight or sound, within touch or reach, within the immediate jurisdiction of the thing that waited. Aha! Aha! Let's pause there. We heard that May had choices. Well, Henry had choices too. He could have gone down the path of making this all about a man and his sexuality who found a woman who was a kindred spirit, but he didn't go down that path. He returned to his view of this as a catastrophe lying in wait for him. So let's give James and the characters some room to explore this idea and keep going. As you listen to the next part, recall that Constance Fenimore Wilson suffered from depression, which ran in her family and which James did not always handle well. He found her sadness and her moods and her gloom to be irremediable and burdensome. He did not help her much, which he regretted later. And he's writing during this period of remorse. Back to the story. When the day came, as come it had to, that his friend confessed to him her fear of a deep disorder in her blood, he felt somehow the shadow of a change and the chill of a shock. He immediately began to imagine aggravations and disasters, and above all to think of her peril as the direct menace for himself of personal privation. This indeed gave him one of those partial recoveries of equanimity that were agreeable to him. It showed him that what was still first in his mind was the loss she herself might suffer. What if she should have to die before knowing, before seeing? It would have been brutal, 
in the early stages of her trouble, to put that question to her. But it had immediately sounded for him to his own concern, and the possibility was what most made him sorry for her. If she did know, moreover, in the sense of her having had some, what should he think, mystical, irresistible light, this would make the matter not better, but worse, inasmuch as her original adoption of his own curiosity had quite become the basis of her life. She had been living to see what would be to be seen, and it would quite lacerate her to have to give up before the accomplishment of the vision. These reflections, as I say, quickened his generosity. Yet, make them as he might, he saw himself, with the lapse of the period, more and more disconcerted. It lapsed for him with a strange, steady sweep. And the oddest oddity was that it gave him, independently of the threat of much inconvenience, almost the only positive surprise his career, if career could be called, had yet offered him. Let's pause there for a moment. What a bizarre turn of events! She confesses a disorder of her blood, and he feels sorry for her, but look at what a prism of ego. I said prism with an, with an M, like the pyramid on the Pink Floyd album, but maybe you heard me say prison with an N, like the building on Alcatraz, and it doesn't matter in this case. The prism is a prison and vice versa. Look at his ego, this ego, his ego. He thinks, oh no, what if she dies? She might never know this fate that's going to happen to me. What a shame that would be. And then he thinks, wait, part of me thinks she does know. Remember that? (laughs) Where he thought she might know? She's watching because she has insight into my fate and she's awaiting, she's waiting to see it. And so it wouldn't be so bad if she dies before seeing it because she knows the outcome already. But actually, that wouldn't be better at all. It would be worse. She spent her whole life waiting to see this great thing that she's envisioned. And now she's not going to see it. It would lacerate her, he thinks. It's so odd that this invention of his, this premonition, this vision of his fate, this beast in this jungle has swept her in, so he's like her best friend, and she's giving everything to him. She's consigned herself that her fate is mixed up with his. His vision is is the event of her life, and yet she's like a parasitical creature, too. She's living for him, and through him, and off of him. Is this how Henry James viewed Constance Fenimore Wilson? He might have In fact, and it's not to his credit as a human being that he did, but it is oh so amazingly to his credit as an artist and as an original thinker that he did, if he did, because this is one of the most tangled and effed up ways of one human being looking at another human being that I've ever heard. And damn it, if I don't believe that Henry and Constance actually did find themselves in this kind of a screwy situation or close enough to one that Henry imagined it being like this. It's so weird. And so fascinating. This is why I read literature. People, if you've stuck with me this far, I'd like to think you're with me in this because don't we like it when human beings and life get so weird like this? Intensely human, which sometimes means completely bizarre. I think we have about one more page. So let's do that. Let's wrap up chapter three. Back to the story. She kept up the house as she had never done. He had to go to her to see her. She could meet him nowhere now, though there was scarce a corner of their loved old London in which she hadn't in the past, at one time or another, done so. And he found her always seated by her fire in the deep old-fashioned chair. She was less and less able to leave. He had been struck one day, after an absence exceeding his usual measure, with her suddenly looking much older to him than he had ever thought of her being. Then he recognized that the suddenness was all on his side. He had just simply and suddenly noticed. She looked older because, inevitably, after so many years, she was old, or almost, which was, of course, true in still greater measure of her companion. If she was old, or almost, John Marcher assuredly was, and yet it was her showing of the lesson, not his own, that brought the truth home to him. His surprises began here. When once they had begun, they multiplied. They came rather with a rush. It was as if, in the oddest way in the world, they had all been kept back, sown in a thick cluster for the late afternoon of life, the time at which, for people in general, the unexpected has died out. 
One of them was that he should have caught himself, for he had so done, really wondering if the great accident would take form now as nothing more than his being condemned to see this charming woman, this admirable friend, pass away from him. He had never so unreservedly qualified her as while confronted in thought with such a possibility, in spite of which there was small doubt for him that as an answer to his long riddle, the mere effacement of even so fine a feature of his situation would be an abject anticlimax. It would represent, as connected with his past attitude, a drop of dignity under the shadow of which his existence could only become the most grotesques of failures. He had been far from holding it a failure, long as he had waited for the appearance that was to make it a success. He had waited for quite another thing, not for such a thing as that. The breath of his good faith came short, however, as he recognized how long he had waited, or how long at least his companion had. That she, at all events, might be recorded as having waited in vain, this affected him sharply, and all the more because of his at first having done little more than amuse himself with the idea. It grew more grave as the gravity of her condition grew, and the state of mind it produced in him which he himself ended by watching as if it had been some definite disfigurement of his outer person, may pass for another of his surprises. This conjoined itself still with another, the really stupefying consciousness of a question that he would have allowed to shape itself had he dared. What did everything mean? What, that is, did she mean, she in her vain waiting and her probable death and the soundless admonition of it all? Unless that, at this time of day, it was simply, it was overwhelmingly too late. He had never, at any stage of his queer consciousness, admitted the whisper of such a correction. He had never, till within these last few months, been so false to his conviction as not to hold that what was to come to him had time, whether he struck himself as having it or not. That at last, at last, he certainly hadn't it to speak of, or had it, but in the scantiest measure. Such, soon enough, as things went with him, became the inference with which his old obsession had to reckon. And this it was not helped to do by the more and more confirmed appearance that the great vagueness casting the long shadow in which he had lived had, to attest itself, almost no margin left." Since it was in time that he was to have met his fate, so it was in time that his fate was to have acted. And as he waked up to the sense of no longer being young, which was exactly the sense of being stale, just as that, in turn, was the sense of being weak, he waked up to another matter beside. It all hung together. They were subject, he and the great vagueness, to an equal and indivisible law. When the possibilities themselves had accordingly turned stale, when the secret of the gods had grown faint, had perhaps even quite evaporated, that, and that only, was failure. It wouldn't have been failure to be bankrupt, dishonored, pilloried, hanged. It was failure not to be anything. And so, in the dark valley into which his path had taken its unlooked-for twist, he wondered not a little as he groped. He didn't care what awful crash might overtake him, with what ignominy or what monstrosity he might yet be associated, since he wasn't, after all, too utterly old to suffer, if it would only be decently proportionate to the posture he had kept all his life in the threatened presence of it. He had but one desire left, that he shouldn't have been sold. we go what a spirited what a rousing conclusion she's dying and he can't figure out what that means for him and for his puzzle about this imaginary beast in this imaginary jungle his beast whatever's waiting for him his fate is his beast that she should die but he feels like that would not be worthy of how long he's devoted himself to waiting for this beast 
and called her a parasite. But he's a parasite too, a parasite in the way that vampires are, except instead of drinking her blood, he's drinking the significance of her life. That's his fuel now, her life's meaning, her purpose, her reason for being alive and walking this earth was to sustain him and his views. He's not subordinate to her. His self-conception is way too elevated for that. He'd rather suffer some monstrosity than think he didn't have a more significant role in life than to be merely sad because his friend passed away. That would not be a scary beast. That would scarcely be an animal. That would be a pet. When you imagine a great jungle cat, a panther, or a tiger is waiting for you in the shadows, you don't want the light to turn on and find a, a hamster nibbling away. Who would? Not Henry James. Is this the same guy I said last time was hard to see and hard to know because this feels awfully raw and exposed to me? In any case, we're now through chapter three. My thanks to those of you who joined us for the middle part of this middle part of the Beast in the Jungle. We'll be back with more beasting. We have to know how this ends, don't we? I'm pretty fascinated. We'll be back with more beasting. We'll see if Marcher continues to be such a beast or if May becomes one. Or if the real beast ever rears its beastly head, I'm Jack Wilson. Not a beast, and maybe not a hero slaying the beast. Maybe just the guy who catches the beast and holds it up and looks at it and invites you to marvel at it with me. I'm a beast buster. Hoping I'm Bill Murray, but probably a little more like Harold Ramis, somewhere in the middle of those two. Maybe a little Kristen Wiig thrown in. Something strange is in the neighborhood. I know that much. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next time.